Luke chapter 1, 39 through 49. Hear the gospel of our Lord. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The word of the Lord. In uh, 1961, some of you were around then, John W. Peterson, a gospel songwriter, was in attendance at the Montrose Bible Conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania, which I think is about an hour north of Scranton, in between Scranton and Binghamton. And at the Bible Conference, many who attended experienced a profound emotional renewal of their faith and, and their faith particularly, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. During a time of testimony, a man, went by, uh, who, a man who went by the name of Old Jim rose to his feet and he told of his experience earlier in the week of how he had come to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. He described his experience this way, quote, it seemed like heaven came down and glory filled my soul, end of quote. Peterson, who was ever alert to a new idea concerning songs, recognized a song title in Jim's words. Almost immediately, he composed a song that has become very popular, a song that is sung literally around the world and in many languages. And here are the words to the chorus. I'm sure many of you recognize the words. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul when at the cross the Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. John W. Peterson has written more than 1,000 songs. I understand dozens of cantatas. He sold more than 3 million copies of his music. But this song probably is the most beloved one that he composed. If old Jim felt that way because of his emotional experience of faith in Christ, can you imagine what Mary... The mother of Jesus must have felt when the angel Gabriel came to her 
and announced to her that she was with child, and moreover that she would give birth to a son, and that she would give him the name Jesus. It would be difficult to imagine what was going on in her mind at that time. In fact, it is difficult to imagine what Mary was thinking at certain times in her life. There are indications where she was puzzled about Jesus and what things meant at certain junctures in the gospel accounts. Nonetheless, the angel went on to say to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, the angel went on to say, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, surely by this time, Mary has to be perplexed. And she even protests to the angel Gabriel about what he has just said. She says this. She says this to him. How will this be? How will this be since I am a virgin? Then Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One that is to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel at that point went also uh, on to announce that John, who was later to become the Baptist, was to be born to her cousin Elizabeth in her old age, and that Elizabeth was already six months pregnant. The angel concludes with this remark, words that every Christian to some degree must trust to be so. Notice the quote, for nothing, he tells Mary, is impossible with God. And then Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May it be so to me as you have said. Now, in this sermon today, I want to take a look at Mary, her life, and her significance. In so doing, I want to set forth a scriptural reason uh, that demonstrates that all generations of Christians are to rise up and call her blessed. Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of Jesus. And I also believe this means for us that we are to honor Mary and her role in the history of salvation because it is right and biblical so to do. So you'll have to hang with me. Some of you might get nervous if I begin to talk about Mary in a way that you're not used to hearing. So hang with me as I go through this. Now, I do feel it necessary to emphasize that I will, as most Protestants do, I will confine my investigation or understanding of Mary and her role in the history of salvation uh, to the teaching of Holy Scripture. There are teachings of, of traditions that go beyond the Scriptures. Uh, this, though, approach that I'm talking about will confine itself then to the Holy Scriptures, 
But let me also, though, add this, and this is an important matter for you to hear, I believe. This approach includes what is taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith when the confession says this, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or may be deduced from Scripture. That is found in chapter 1, section 6. And I'm going to make some deductions and inferences from the account that we look at. Thus, a proper method of biblical interpretation concerning Mary will include our ability to make deductions. Uh, I'm not Sherlock Holmes, but we can learn to deduce some things from the evidence that is there that would be edifying and good for us to make. By taking this approach, we have actually entered into an area that theologians call the development of doctrine. Or that is that we will have from the biblical material a fuller understanding of Mary and her role in God's plan of salvation. That is, we will be able to, to more rightly, if you will, appreciate Mary and her role uh, in the biblical story and the biblical narrative. Now, we have done this for the doctrine of the Trinity, and no one seems to chafe or balk at that. It is right that we do the same thing for Mary because we get a fuller understanding if we not only read the scriptures but draw the right inferences. I, I want to emphasize, though, that it is difficult to give Mary her proper respect because most Pro Protestants, even today, continue to overreact against what the medieval Christians uh, developed in the Middle Ages, especially from the 10th to the 13th centuries. And uh, that, of course, period of time has become the norm for the Roman Catholic Church, but it has not for the Protestant churches. And, and uh, to a greater extent, though, it has become the norm uh, for the Eastern churches. Now, I want to make this uh, point, too. I'm not going to polemicize. That means argue against any group. And the reason I make that point is, isn't that the, the quickest way in the world to, to dull your own joy and sense of devotion by entering into a, an argument or a, a polemic against somebody else? It's just not edifying. We want to focus on the scriptures and what the scriptures teach concerning Mary so that we can rightly honor her in the way the scriptures tell us to. Now, one last matter before I proceed. I, I wrote, read to you about 10 verses, but actually I'm, I'm taking my points from about 30 verses in that section of Scripture. So I don't mind if you open up your Bibles and look at some of these verses at all if you want to. Most of the time it's just good just to sit back and listen and relax, but if you want to follow along, uh, that's fine. Now, let me start with this. Let's consider, for instance, what verse 37 says. And, uh, and I emphasized it in the reading and uh, sermon already. And verse 37 is a word that comes from the angel to, 
to you will if to answer Mary's objections. Uh, it's, it's almost a, a, a prolipsis. He answers her objections before she can get them all out because she must have a hundred. But she's already raised one. How can this be? Uh, I'm a virgin. How could I possibly get pregnant uh, with a child? And then the angel Gabriel says at that point, for nothing is impossible with God. For nothing is impossible with God. Now, what we are dealing with here are events and truths which are to be established through revelation and not through human investigation. Let me stop there and emphasize that. There are some truths that are revealed to us that we could not possibly discuss uh, to, to discuss because we could not possibly have knowledge of that. Now, how do you say that is? Well, it's not possible, for instance, to enter into God's realm and God's mind and to understand what God's plans are, though you will find that there's no one of trying. Uh, no one of trying, uh, even among those who sometimes love the Bible the most. But what we are talking about are truths that immediately come from God and they establish themselves in history. And the reason that they are not subject to our investigation is because they are miracles. In other words, the events surrounding Mary's life happen to be miracles that an angel would appear, that a woman could conceive a young woman without... Um, having the normal way of conception. Or that uh, Jesus himself could be born, who was God in human flesh. So the entire account is surrounded by things that God is doing immediately in human history, and they do not arise out of history. We call these things then miracles. And we believe them because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and we believe them because the Holy Spirit is working in our lives and opens our eyes to these things. And I suppose if someone came up to me and said, can you empirically prove that Mary was a virgin? I would have to say, no, I can only point you to the testimony of Scripture. And I trust the Scriptures to be the Word of God. Now, also, I would remind you of something Blaise Pascal once said, the great French mathematician, what, of uh, some centuries back. And he put it this way, and you've heard, you've heard this. He says, we believe some things, and the reason is that the heart has its reasons that reason knows not of. Now, when you say something like that, some people will say, then, you are believing irrational things. No, not at all. When we come to this passage, I will not be asking you to believe irrational things. What I will be asking you to believe are things which are above our powers to rationalize or to, or to grasp through reason. There are things that we believe that we cannot actually prove empirically. No one can actually live by science. We wouldn't have such a thing as love if you went simply by the concept of biological secretions or 
uh, chemistry or whatever. You would have attraction, but you would never really have love. And so I don't think you would find because certain ants in an ant colony are attracted to each other chemically that you would call that love. It is not. But on the other hand, in our human societies, we, we form uh, societies and we, we talk about love where people are willing to lay down their lives and so forth. And so Pascal is right. We, we can't prove love, but we all accept it. And in a real sense, we're talking about love in this case too, but it is the love of God which has been displayed in human history. And that's what the scripture says, what took place uh, in the womb of Mary. Uh, that is that God demonstrated his love toward us in that he sent his son, gave his son, and eventually that he died on a cross for us. So the events surrounding the birth of Jesus are not unreasonable. They just simply pass beyond and are higher than our powers of reason. The second point that I want to make is that Mary had a certain response to the angel. And I want you to notice her response. Her response is found in verse 38, where she says, I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now, what about this response? I think we can learn a great deal and get a great insight into Mary. Now, we've been taught uh, not to, to listen, if you will, to the words of a politician. I think that's wise. But watch what they do. Well, you are going to see in the scriptures as the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of those first century Christians unfold, you're going to see that she demonstrates certain characteristics of, of her personality and character through her words, but also through her actions all life long. And so we come to this, and I want you to see again that she said, I am the Lord's servant, May it be to me as you have said. Now, what about this response? The first thing to notice is that the word Mary uses, and you have to know a little bit of Greek to know what the word she uses that's translated as servant. It is the word doulos. It's a very simple first, first lesson almost word you learn in Greek. Doulos. It was on my first or second list of words in, in Greek when I took Greek. Doulos. It's sometimes translated in some of these texts as handmaiden, uh, but that's, that's a little uh, a stretch in some sense, but in the context, it's fine. But what it really means, Mary is saying something much stronger than servant or handmaiden. She's really saying, I am your slave, O Lord. I will submit myself entirely to what you have said through your angel. Mary's submission to the will of God is an act of great commitment and great trust. She is not yet pregnant. And yet she claims the promise. She's not yet pregnant because it's in the future. She is shortly, I'm sure. She is not yet pregnant. And there are no signs to this point outside of Gabriel's appearance to testify to her that this is coming true. 
She could have, if you will, dismissed Gabriel as a dream or a delusion. But for some reason, she readily responds to what she believes is God's word of promise to her. The speed with which she promises and the depth of her commitment are to be noticed. She believes God's promise. Now, let me make a statement. Mary, if you will, was the first believer in Jesus Christ. Can't you see it here? There's not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. But Mary believes already. Maybe even before he was conceived. Maybe before she even felt as Elizabeth felt John the Baptist leap in her womb. Maybe before she even felt the baby Jesus in her womb. She was a believer. Moreover, she became the first disciple at that point. The word disciple is a wonderful word. It means teacher, uh, uh, to be a learner in a school. She is really entering into the schoolhouse of God through Jesus Christ and what's taking place. And Mary, as demonstrated throughout the scriptures, clings to these promises all the time. Now, she had questions. She was puzzled. She may have made missteps in calculation and judging her son. She seems to at certain points. She certainly didn't understand him. Now, here's the deduction. What deduction can we make from this? What inferences can we draw from this language? Well, first of all, Mary is an exemplar, an example. She is, is an example for all Christians through all time and all places. And here's her example, if you will, in part. Her example is her depth of commitment to Christ, to bear him, and of course to his Father in heaven. Christianity always is a call to faith and discipleship, and Mary is the first to do that, and therefore she is our example. Now, let me say something about life. Life is important uh, and, and it can only be fu fully, if you will, or never in this life, but as full as we can enjoy life, it must be done through learning to trust. Just in ordinary life, apart from what we're talking about, if a person is to develop in a healthy way in life, they must first learn to trust and to trust someone. They won't gain any knowledge if they don't. And the first signs of trust, no doubt, and the first ways of trust are the bond between the mother and the baby. The baby learns to trust the goodness of the mother, the benevolence of the mother. And then in life, we learn to trust others and so forth. And it, it frees us up to, to enjoy life. But some people never get to that place, do they? Well, Christians ought to embrace that. But there is another more profound way, if you will, to trust in life, and that is to trust God and His Word. Trust in life can help you enjoy life in this world, but trust in God not only helps you to enjoy life in this world, but to also hope for the next. It's for the surrender of the totality of your being is trust. Mary does that. She is an example of what it means to trust in God, not only for this life, but for the next. She even calls us, we'll later see in a roundabout way, Jesus as her Savior. 
Can we say then that Mary, and this is a stretch for some of you, is the mother of believers? I think we can. Why not? She was the first. Could we not hear the story and read the story and think of her as the mother of believers? I think we can. Maybe that's what it means to bless her and to recognize her role in life and in the history of salvation. I think it is a good and right deduction to draw. Let me explain what I mean about Mary's role. Uh, some, some years ago, I, I taught uh, uh, courses uh, in, in college, uh, two or three years back. And uh, I did for some years, and I used to teach religions of the world, and one religion that I taught, as a matter of fact, one whole semester I spent on Chinese philosophy. And Confucius, or Confitsu, is a, is a, a revered figure in, in the history of China. He is called the first teacher. Now, he is not the first teacher because he was the first one in history. Even though he lived about 500 B.C., he was not the first. But he's still called the first teacher because of his rank and dignity as a teacher and his influence on the history of China. Let me say that we can call Mary, if you will, the first mother who was to bear a son. And she's the first mother of the faith of all who believe, and we are to follow her example. And in so doing, we call her blessed. Let me go on. Mary, as the mother of Jesus, quite clearly here, then, is chosen by God to furnish Jesus his humanity. Now let's examine that for a moment. Mary, as the mother of Jesus, furnished her son his humanness, you might say his DNA. In Christian theology, Jesus is fully, fully, fully man. He's not half man and half God. He's fully man and fully God. And since he is fully man, he takes his manliness, if you will, or his humanness from Mary, his mother. Now, that, that is an amazing thing to think about. His, D, his DNA was her DNA. He also took his mannerisms from her, his cultural understanding from her. You ever see a mother when a baby's first born? I notice when our firstborn uh, came into the world and the second born as well, but Marlene, much more than I, started looking at the hands and the feet and everything like that to see if they were there. Everything was okay. I, 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 I was there, but I didn't think to look at those things. But she did. There's a certain bond you have. So she looked at her hands. As a matter of fact, I, I was talking about the process, and she was talking about the way the hands look. I can remember that distinctly. And then I realized, you know, these things are quite important. I was looking at a picture of my grandfather. My daughter just came in from Florida, and she says, Dad, you, you stand just the way your grandfather stands. And sure enough, when I stand, my, one foot's this way and one's this way, just like my grandfather. My hands are even 
somewhat look like his. I live with my grandfather from age three to age six and every summer until he died when I was 20. I learned, I, I, I got some DNA from him, but I also got what they call cultural memes, habits and behaviors. I got my genes and my memes from my grandfather's side. I suspect that Mary looked at Jesus many times as he was growing up and saw her habits and traits in him. I'm sure that other people could look at Jesus and say, you know, he, he, he holds his hand just like his mother. Everything he was as a human being, he received from her. That's a blessed instrument of God's salvation, is it not? And it wasn't just a thing, it was a human being, a person. Mary is the mother of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Jesus was fully man. She did not furnish his godhood. Now, I want to make a point here. Mary was not just, if you will, theologically speaking, the mother of his manhood. There is something in theology where you can attribute if you attribute uh, to one part, you can make it the whole. See, Jesus was not a divided person. He was one person. So what you ascribe to his human nature, you can ascribe to the whole person. Now, now this is going to take a step that makes some of you uncomfortable. The Eastern Church rightly talks about Jesus and Mary's relationship in this way. They say Mary is theotokos, bearer of God. Not that she furnished his deity, but the whole person was born of her. She furnished his manhood. But what you attribute to the nature, you can attribute to the whole person. Therefore, they emphasize that you can call Mary Theotokos, bearer of God. And we have it in English as mother of God. Is this right to call her Mater D or Theotokos? Makes many Protestants feel uncomfortable to do this. And there is reason. John Calvin did not like speaking of Mary as Theotokos because he thought it might lead people into certain superstitions, even though he thought it was theologically correct and necessary for theologians to speak that way. Karl Barth, probably the most famous theologian of the 20th century, he also was uncomfortable with this. I look up what he had to say about this. And he says this about the phrase, Mother of God. He says it was permitted and necessary despite the terminology being burdened by Roman Catholic Mariology. Necessary. Our confession of faith inexorably pushes us to the direction that we have to speak of Mary in that way. Now you have to stay with me here. What this does not mean is that we will worship her. We will seek her out as a mediator. But if you are to give that honor 
which is do her, to rise up and call her blessed, you must recognize that she holds a unique role in the history of Christian thought and salvation. There is no question about it. You see, Mary here also is another kind of example, and I don't have much time to develop this, just simply to say this. She is also a paragon of devotion. It's interesting as we get into the, what is called the Magnificat here, she goes on to say, My soul praises the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I take that to mean that she is also to be emulated in her worship and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and to our Father in heaven. The Magnificat is a wonderful devotional piece, and it is sung and remembered through churches down through the centuries. It is a wonderful, wonderful, uh, if you will, a, a magnificent illustration of great poetry and a great music. Mary is an example in many and various ways. She says, my soul praises the Lord. Now, I've spoken from the scriptures and the scriptural data and drawn some inferences. I hope that you will remember that she is not just the donkey in the major scene. She's not just the wise men. She's not just the shepherds. She is that one that God chose to bear the Son of God. And she is rightly to be called blessed by us. I started out this particular sermon today by talking about a song, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul. Mary was chosen among all women for heaven to come down and to enter into her womb so that he might enter into our hearts through faith as we look back upon that time when he walked the face of the earth. And we ought to give thanks to God for his work and for his salvation. And yes, to rightly remember Mary for who she was and for what she did and for the example she serves. Praise be to God for his calling. Praise be to God for his word. Praise be to God for the example that we have in Mary, the mother of Jesus. Amen.